Well, it's been almost almost 12 hours since I was at a hockey rink. It's Thursday morning. I guess this would be day seven of the Vancouver Winter Olympics. It's early morning. I'm here at the North Shore Winter Club to observe a hockey game featuring, uh, well, a lot of the local tech industry luminaries with whom I mingle and fraternize, as well as a variety of ex-NHLers, WHLers, junior players, a whole variety pack of hockey talent out here. But, you know, as soon as you open up the door to a rink, especially one of these small community rinks, the, the thing that hits you is the smell. Eh? Just that smell of the ice. And then you're in here on rather than up in the nosebleed seats, up high in the rafters, which has its own thrill, watching the players far down below, working their magic, being right here at ice level, and seeing people doing it because they love it. Eight o'clock on a on a weekday morning, uh, where afterwards most of them be heading off to a day job or whatever, not getting some exercise. But this is no scrub league hockey. There's some uh, well, there's some real players out here. Yeah, it's a little bit of a mix, but right away you can tell that there's some players that got some skills, and they help the other ones uh, kind of come along. Some gray beards out there, and a whole variety of jerseys and gear and things matched, you know, unmatched together and pieced together, like uh, like you're doing it for the love, not doing it for the money. We got a bunch of red jerseys out here. Most of them wearing the Team Canada colors against a bunch of white jerseys, including a bunch of old uh, Canucks jerseys. And there's a, there's a visitor from uh, Silicon Valley, Guy Kawasaki. If you're uh, into the blogging and all that, you might know him. Oh, look at that. He's on a breakaway. Holy goal! Nice move, but he couldn't put it home. Anyway, let me tell you about those last couple nights of hockey because, uh, well, it's been, a, it's been a few days of nonstop hockey action for me. I believe the last time I checked in with you, I was on my way to see Latvia versus uh, Russia uh, at Canada Hockey Place. And sure enough, we went in for a little pre-gamer at the Quebec House. The Quebec House is interesting. Oh, Ian Bell. The deflection gets through the five hole. The, uh, the Quebec House is just a big cube. It's out there on the Concord Pacific. And if you were here in Vancouver for the Expo 86 game, you would uh, remember that land is where most of the pavilions were. And now there's the Ontario Pavilion, the Saskatchewan Pavilion. Saskatchewan, hard to spell, easy to draw. And the Quebec Pavilion, which is just really a giant cube with, like, giant 30-foot white walls all around it, but no roof. Inside there's, like, a little kiosk kind of building that where they're selling uh, the refreshments. they got a few just little small booths set up selling beer. they got a band up front. But you look up. And it's nothing but sky. So that was kind of weird. Uh, and plus there was no wine, which is why it was a place of choice. And actually we didn't actually buy beer there. We just drank the beer we smuggled in. But that's a story for another another day. And that's just called being thrifty. The same way I'm always traveling with three sandwiches in my pocket. And no, I'm not joking or exaggerating. I have three sandwiches in my pocket. As the games have gone on, I've traveled lighter and lighter, though. Keeping it, because uh, if you have very little gear, then it's a much easier getting through security. And folks seem to have figured that out now, right? Because the lines are going faster, the streets are clearer, and people figure out, well, yeah, really, maybe we ought to be taking transit, right? So, anyway, I'd hope to rally up with some Latvian fans before the game, but what can I tell you? You know, it's hard to keep on scared. But once you get through the initial security, oh, guy, Kawasaki has a face-off, you get uh, into the other holding pen, and uh, while they're clearing out the ranks from the previous game, you know what I mean, all the Latvian and Czech fans are, are all in there, chanting the various countries' slogans. 
Oh, another goal. The goalies are starting to get work here. And uh, but once we got into the game, you know, the, the Russians, they're, they're a hockey-playing people, right? But they've kind of fallen on hard times on international level because you remember the old, and if you're a hockey fan, you know all this, right? But it used to be in the Olympics when it was amateur players, but the Soviet players didn't know we're amateurs. We're all just in the army. And you know about the miracle on ice. You've heard that story a million times. U.S. college hockey players in defeating the mighty Red Army with hard determination and, and a whole life advantage. But uh, since the breakup of the Soviet Union, what was that, 92, 93, I just remember hearing the news while I was out uh, seeing Jerry Garcia and David Grisman that summer put it all together. Anyway, part of the, part of the flashback. You know, the Russians haven't really won anything big since then because they've tried to put together these teams under various Russian federations, Commonwealth of Independent States, and now they're back to just being Russia. they got their national program back sorted out, and they have an A-list roster of talent. Holy smokes, the lineup up and down. These incredible names, Ovechkin and Malkin, Datsuk, just, we're just starters, right? You know, we're just the beginning of the list. Whereas Latvia, Latvia, instead of spanning 14 time zones and having hundreds of millions of people like uh, Russia does, is a small country on the Baltic Sea with a few, few scant millions. And for years, they lived under the totalitarian regime of, of the USSR. And they did not like it, right? For years, they were obliged to learn Russian. They were obliged to hide their culture. But yet, they kept, kept their culture alive. And a unique culture it is, too. And they're... they're uh, extremely proud of their heritage and their love of hockey. And the way this tournament works where there's uh, 12 teams, there's, what is it, three pools, four, 12 teams, you know, Latvia's right down there at the bottom of the list, you know, as far as qualifying. They have to qualify up from the B pool, go through all the what to do. So they're good enough to sit at the big boys' table, except they're going to be hard-pressed to win any games. They're in a pool where they'll play Russia, they'll play Slovakia, and they'll play the Czech Republic. And then based on that, the top team from each of the pools advances as well as the best of the second. Now, on while the, the Russia team was mostly all NHL players and a couple of top players from the KHL, maybe three or four, to augment the lineup, including Nabokov, Nabokov and Grzgalov as their goalies. And for Latvians, they used to have Latvian superhero Archers Urbe in goal, but he's long since retired. And... And now the closest they come to NHL is Carlos Strafton, who's their captain, uh, an NHL defenseman. And, uh, and Herbert Vercelius, who had a you know, cup of coffee with the Canucks for, uh, for a little while uh, a number of years ago, and he was their starting center. So that's as close as they came. Daniel Zubris isn't there anymore. Sanders Lozolinch isn't more. Oh, man, it would be a treat to watch. So needless to say, the, Rus- the, the Russians seem to have a distinct advantage. However, once the puck dropped, the Russians clearly had the skill advantage. I mean, there's no doubt about it, right? But the Latvians, rather than falling in a defensive shell and protecting the puck and just dumping the puck and just trying to play the body and ship it out, they were working the stretch pass. They were really experimenting. They were really, well, they were, they were going for it. And they were taking some chances and giving up chances the other way. And, you know, especially in the second period, the Latvians played them real tight. And they kind of got better in the second than they were in the first, but by the third, the Russian skill just took over and they took advantage of a few Latvian mistakes. And once you give the puck on the stick of a guy like Ovechkin, he's not going to miss too often. And sure enough, he spotted two goals on the night. His teammates run it up and we finished 8-2 to two with a couple late ones. Oh, here's Guy Kyle Sock again. Oh, Ian Bell with the save. 
Gives up the rebound, and in it goes. Oh, Ian Bell looking sharp in his Canada jersey, though, i got to say. So, uh, anyway, great entertainment. But the, really the story for me, the really enjoyable part, was seeing those Latvian fans out there en masse. And earlier in the day, that there was a meet and greet with the Latvian president and prime minister. And they're all out. Like, it seems like they load up the whole country and bring them out. And some folks out with, like, what could be the first ever Latvian flag, independent flag. And it's all these great stories. So you're going to hear more about Latvia as I go again and see them on Saturday versus Slovakia. And at that point, I'm going to try and meet some Latvians and talk to my buddy Chris Breek, who is of Latvian ancestry. And I've learned that his grandfather was a Latvian poet. And one day, the... Uh, God, it's, it's painful just to say it. I mean, it sounds like the story of Dr. Zhivago in real life, right? The, uh, the powers that be came to his door and hauled him away to a gulag in Siberia where anyone with a brain or a thought of independent thought and, and the vigor of rebellion or, or the counter-revolution well, was, uh, was hauled off to, and he died suffering in a, in a Siberian gulag. While his poetry lives on, and oh, look at that. Oh, nice wrister, but misses top right. That was Guy again, man. He is in on the play. So I really, you know, to me, I, you know, I love poetry, and I love that place where poetry and hockey intersect. So I plan to investigate more of this and help the Latvians celebrate their time here in Canada. So, heading home, uh, getting a few hours sleep, back out of the next day. Um, Back to the day job, back out, a couple of tall cans and uh, a little bit of herbal preparation. We're back at the race, and this time to see Slovakia versus the Czech Republic. And this is kind of like, um, you know, Czech and Slovakia also, like the Latvians, lived under the uh, Soviet regime. Before that, they were under the Nazi regime, and, you know, they just, they've had a hard time just staying free and independent. But one of my personal heroes, Václav Havel, again, someone who lived at that intersection between art and sport and politics and all these things. In 1967, uh, there was the uh, Prague Spring, they call it, and it was like a time of just openness and mm, like and freedom and starting to be like the seeds of independence and all this. And this is the time between the Nazis, but before the Soviets really cracked down and you know and uh, and that the glory days of the Cold War in the 70s. And in the 1968, the tanks rolled in and squashed the Prague Spring Movement and jailed uh, Václav Havel, the, uh, the dissident playwright who was leading the, uh, the revolution, so to speak. And while in jail, he wrote a tremendous amount of, of plays. He wasn't allowed to um, openly communicate, so he, he spoke through his, his art. And even the letters to his wife were all veiled messages of of, uh, of dissidence and, and rebellion and, and openness and, and freedom and, and but it was all veiled behind these existentialist plays that if you read them you go what is going on so anyway later on in the early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed and one by one the Eastern European uh, uh, states started to declare their, nation states started to declare their independence and, and wrest themselves away from the icy grip of the Soviet control. The Václav uh, Havel went from the, literally went from the prison to the presidential palace in the course of a day and stood out on the balcony on King Wentworth Square and once again 
Czechoslovakia at the time was an independent land. And Frank Zappa even came to play the uh, the party, and, and uh, Vaklov went on to, well, kind of lead the country for a couple of years, including what they... Uh, and well, they, they, the, the part where they left the Soviet Union, they called that the Velvet Revolution because there's no bloodshed, there's no tanks, there's no chaos. It was, it was just, it just happened, man. They just did it, but through art and communication and hmm, something like that, right? So then Czech and Slovakia, who had been squished together by foreign powers, decided, hey, you know, we were just squished together by foreign powers. Maybe we should uh, split her on up, and they did, and they called that the Velvet Divorce. However, the political power and the population power. And the hockey history all remained with the Czech Republic. In Prague, you know, the Prague was HQ. And then Bratislava, the new capital of, the, of Slovakia. So the Slovaks were obliged to requalify themselves at an international level as a hockey power and work their way back up playing these minor, uh, more minor hockey playing countries, even though they had a proud hockey tradition of their own. So now what you got is two really talented rosters, the Czechs and the Slovaks. And both of them up and down were almost all NHL players, with a few exceptions. Uh, notable exceptions would include Jarmir Jager, the former NHL star, who now plays in the Continental Hockey League, uh, playing for the Czech Republic. And as it were, he's uh, the old veteran. Heck, he's staying near my age. Was uh, the top player? On, ooh, the top player on the ice that night, with a uh, with a great breakaway goal. Uh, you know, Jager really played well. There were shifts where he was he was just playing keep away. He was all over the zone kept on controlling the puck. The guy's huge and got that huge hockey build and got great hands to boot. Slovakians, for all their great front-end offensive talent, they just could not find the handle on these open chances. Guys like Gabarek and Hosa and Hosa and Dimitra. Some great, some great hands, but we weren't seeing them last night near enough. And the check in the third period, um, but in the second period they got a 3-1. They watched it down in the third. And that was really all she wrote. The third period was kind of a downer after really entertaining uh, seconds. And, and after the, well, you know, the second half of the first and the second period were really entertaining. The first bit of the first, it was a little tentative, teams feeling each other out, getting their stride. But oddly enough, you know, these, they don't really see themselves as rivals. They're more like uh, buddies with a common enemy. They all want to beat the Russians. They don't, you know, of course they want to beat each other and they want to win and all this. But um, they... Uh, they really want to beat the Russians, right? Everyone was looking at the Russians to beat. So, after this game here, next on my hockey agenda, the next game is Saturday with Latvia, Slovakia, and then Sunday with Sweden and Finland. So another couple of neighbor countries in another pool. And remember, only the top team in each pool is guaranteed to advance with the best of the second. Next up, so that means, you know, Sweden and Finland probably won't both make it. means that... Russia and Czech both won't make it. It means that Canada and the U.S. probably both, both won't make it. But one of those second-place teams will. And I don't mean to count out Germany and Latvia and, and um, you know, the, the, the few other countries in the tourney, the Belarusians and stuff, but this is, uh, this is some top-notch hockey here, and this could be what, what could go down the best hockey tournament maybe of all time, but it's probably... Uh, probably one of the greats anyway. I mean, 0-2 in Salt Lake City was a great tournament. The 1972 Summit Series were, of course, incredible. Same with the 76 uh, Canada Cup. This is great hockey, but this one, uh, I don't think will will be overshadowed by really any of them. Now, here we are in Day 7. The party's on the street. It's still going strong in Vancouver. 
and just speculate, if you will, what the party will be like if Canada men's uh, hockey team wins the gold. It will just be incredible. As we're seeing the Canadian Olympians bring home medals, the town erupts and become national heroes. Well, if you can measure that by trending on Twitter, within moments, Alexander Belladou and Miel Ricker on the snowboard cross, and all these, these uh, we're seeing some great performances. Yesterday was a big day for the USA with Sean White doing ups- the absurdity that this guy was doing on the half pipe was just, is, is really unfathomable to me. And uh, as well as Shani Davis and a few other uh, Americans winning medals. But on this day, here at the North Shore Winter Club, there's a batch of people doing it for the love. Doing it for the love. They're wearing the colors and the skills are there, but, you know, not there there. You know what I'm saying? They're not ready to lace them up and go down on the big rink yet. But there's some guys who at some point were, were capable of doing that. But really, when it comes down to it, isn't the Olympics about amateurism? Isn't it about doing it for the love? Isn't it doing it for the, for the fun? Isn't it about having a good time with your, uh, with your friends and colleagues and compatriots and co-conspirators? And that's what I'm doing today. And I hope you're doing the same. Olympic Outsider, out again from North Van.